This season of Celestial Citizen Podcast is sponsored by Multiverse Media Group, a global media group involved in all things science and technology, with an emphasis on space. We'll talk more about them and their work in the middle of this episode, but a big thank you to Multiverse Media Group for making this podcast happen. You're listening to the Celestial Citizen Podcast, and I'm your host, Britt Duffy Adkins. Celestial Citizen is a space media company with embedded urban planning values, looking to help shape a more equitable and just future for all of us in space. This podcast seeks to provide an opportunity for conversation about how to be a better interplanetary citizen and responsible steward of Earth and the cosmos. By engaging the global public, providing greater access to the space industry, and amplifying a more diverse set of voices, progress in space can equate to progress on Earth. We who are bursting with stardust can become celestial citizens. Welcome to another episode of Celestial Citizen Podcast. On today's episode, we'll be talking about space architecture, gender equality in the built environment, and how space innovations can inform better design here on Earth as well. So right now, it's like once in a lifetime chance to start new. Nothing is there. We are now creating the infrastructure. If we create it in a way that is not taking real diversity into consideration, it will stay that way or it will be much harder for us to change it. Right now, it's the easiest to do things differently. It's hard to imagine it, but it's gonna get harder once it's already there. Once we'll have it, we'll say, okay, that's it. On today's show, we are joined by Michal Ziso. Mika is a futurist equality activist and space architect, creating the future of the built environment on Earth through space innovation. Mika is the founder and CEO of Ziso Architecture and Innovation Lab and The Sleep Space, an early stage space tech startup. With over a decade of experience designing skyscrapers and innovative large scale projects, Mika is also an advisory board member of Moon to Mars Ventures and Earth and Beyond Incubator. Mika promotes democratization of access to space and is a global scale trailblazer for human-centered design of space environments via collaborations with NASA, ISA, the Israel Space Agency, and the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs Group Space for Women. So it's such a pleasure to have you here, Mika. Thanks for joining today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So to kick things off, I thought we'd get started with kind of the origin story. How did you become interested in this area in the first place? And what came first, a love of architecture or a love of space? I can easily answer the second question. The first one is kind of more complicated. So I'll start with the second one. First, I was fascinated with buildings, with cities. When I was really, really young, I used to tell my parents whenever they took me to see the most amazing nature places all over the world, I always told them, it's not exciting enough. Take me to a city. So I think the love of architecture definitely was there first. And actually, I was never really into space. I got to the space industry completely without any intention. I didn't even know that space architect is something that I can become. So it was a very interesting kind of turn of events that I didn't expect, but it taught me a lot. It taught me that you don't have to always hold on to what you envision in your future because sometimes life can take you in a different, much more interesting route. What would you say is the most rewarding aspect of being a space architect? One, it allows me to think about and to actually maybe influence the future of humanity outside of Earth. How cool is that? And what I try to do by influencing the future 
outside of Earth is trying to kind of not repeat or help others not repeat mistakes that were made here on Earth that I began to see. On Earth, we are using environments that were designed long time ago by different people than us, different times, different technology. And usually also the people that we're designing are not reflecting the users. Our cities, our neighborhoods, our buildings, our offices was not designed for us. Therefore, it's not the best we can have and that allows us to live our best life. That's at best. And at worst, it's actually creating a sort of discrimination by design. So once I saw that on Earth and I got into the industry, I understood that I want to help as much as I can to prevent same mistakes from happening. And we're really close to them happening again. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that thinking about space is actually a creative thinking tool for me to innovate back here on Earth. You know, I think a lot of people listening, or hopefully if they've made it to season three of this podcast, they're starting to consider that our future in space might be closer than they realize. But certainly to your point there that repeating some of these same mistakes, we're very close to doing that. And it would be a very easy thing to fall into. So of course, you know, I'm a big fan of the direction that you take with your work and really trying to actively change that. Another question I have for you too is just around space architecture in general, right? It's such an interesting area. It's such an interesting career and profession to choose. But I'm sure there's lots of misconceptions that people have about what you do. So what would you say is the most common misconception that people have about space architects? I mean, you have to know a little bit about something to have a misconception about it. Usually people were not even aware that there is someone who is designing something in space. A lot of people are not even aware that the new space era is happening. We're living in it, that the future in space is becoming more democratized. It's opening up to more people. A lot of people are not aware of that. So a lot of people are usually not aware that space architecture is a thing. They don't really know what to expect when I tell them that that's what I do without any explanation. Sometimes they think that the biggest thing, and it's a play on words, but they think that I'm talking about designing spaces on Earth, volumes. <laughs> they don't really, their mind is not even taking them to, to think that I'm designing things outside of Earth. Maybe they go with designing stuff for movies, but that's so far out there and so not common yet. There are so few people that are actually doing this that the main thing is that they just don't know. It's funny that you say that because that's definitely something that I've gotten. Even when I talk to people about being a space urban planner, they're like, so like wide open spaces or like, what what are we talking about here? It's like they don't even go to outer space. You know, they don't even start thinking down that path. So going back to something you said earlier, how do you see the work that you do in the space industry and in architecture improving the quality of life on Earth? One is that it's a tool to innovate. Humans in general have a hard time anticipating the future. It's hard for us to conceptualize things that we never experienced. And a lot of times when we are trying to design for the future on Earth, as architects, as designers, we can't really comprehend or see the actual tremendous changes that are going to happen and prepare for them. Especially when we're talking about architecture, that is something that the time that you start to conceptualize it and the time that you actually finish constructing it, maybe the world changed exponentially between those two points in time. So it's really important to try to understand the future. And space allows us to really disconnect from things that we know. Because the space environments are so different, so extreme, and there are so many of them. You have the lower Earth orbit, you have the moon, you have Mars. And so that it allows you to really think about how you would do things completely differently right now with the technology we have and we anticipate to have soon and how you would do it if you were given a certain problem right now. And it's about everything. It's about how we eat, how we breathe, how we walk, how we talk, everything in space we have to kind of reinvent. So space helps us to innovate. And a lot of things that we are using right now are were invented for space and we don't really know it. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, I think a lot of times space architecture, at least in my mind, has the potential to be the epitome of sustainability because we are forced 
to design closed-loop systems that are not reliant on any existing infrastructure. We have to produce our own energy. We have to grow our own food. We have to filter our air. We have to filter the water. We have to do everything on our own in a small, compact environment. So if we could take those ideas or those technologies back here to Earth, we'll have so many amazing, amazing solutions. And also because space is so hard, if we solve problems in space, essentially a lot of times they can be future problems that we'll have to deal with where we'll be prepared for here on Earth. You brought up so many good points there. And I think that that really is exciting thing, which captures a lot of people's interest. And I think why we're starting to see a lot of non-traditional backgrounds enter into the space industry, because I do think that that element of what you're talking about, where it just, it gives you this like space for innovation because of the fact that it is such a different environment. It is such a challenging environment. And that's true, not only in architecture. I mean, that's also true in policy, right? Like thinking of the political environment in which space exists and sort of how we have to think about different treaties and legalities and regulations and all of that. So it's, I think across the board, space represents this really cool like incubator space in some ways that can then help us kind of see things maybe more clearly. So tell us more about ZISO Architecture and Innovation Lab and maybe also share some of the projects that you're working on right now. When I first founded the lab, it was architecture and equality. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to research and design things on earth that are based on the ideas of equality-driven architecture. That means that I want, it began with women, as I am one, but kind of human equality, not just gender equality. I want everyone to be able to not only feel safe and be more effective and efficient. Your architecture has the power to influence so many things. It can influence how we think, how we feel, how we connect to other people. And I see that we take for granted so many things that we shouldn't, that are wasting our time or endangering our lives. That was my goal. Problem with that was that the large-scale projects are usually led by, funded by, developed by men who don't really care, not in a way that like they are bad people, but they care about profit. And these types of things, types of changes should come from a deeper understanding. And a lot of times there is no time to educate anyone when you're doing a project. So I found myself without a lot of work and got into the space industry in a very interesting way through a conceptual competition. And the lab became a creature that is not even architecture anymore. It's first of all, innovation uh, or using architecture on pillars of equality and doing it through thinking about space. So what we do is we do a lot of research. A few of our researches, we have an interesting one that we call from earth disabilities to space superpowers. Imagine a person in a wheelchair. They, if everything around us were built for wheelchairs, the people on the wheelchairs were able to do everything. So a lot of times a disability is a construct of our environment. And since space is a whole new environment, I wondered if those people with different abilities, and I stopped calling it disabilities, if those different abilities can actually become an asset in space. And if so, when we design future structures in space, spaceships, stations, habitats, should we also incorporate these people in mind as future space travelers? So, for example, imagine Paralympic athletes who are top of their game in terms of health, but maybe they are lower limb amputees. These people can potentially become amazing astronauts. Why? Because one, it costs a lot of money to fly things out to space. They may weigh less than other people with lower limbs. Two, on the International Space Station or in orbit, when you're in an environment of zero gravity or microgravity, you usually don't use your legs. So you don't need the legs. Not only you don't use your legs, you use your hands to move around. You have to work out. Astronauts on the space station have to work out two hours a day to train their body and to prevent deterioration of muscles and bone density. 
And they potentially could train less, save more time. So basically, these people could be even better, maybe, than on certain levels than regular astronauts. And I had an intern of mine talk about this just to ask questions with the European Space Agency. And I don't know if it was something that they already had in mind or not, but a year later, they opened up the para-astronaut program where they are looking for exactly those types of people to think about putting them into the astronaut force. So that's amazing. Another example, if we look into deep space missions and longer duration missions, we have an issue of space blindness. Usually it's more prominent in men. So that means that there is a lot of pressure on the eyes in microgravity and zero gravity. And also there's a lot of radiation. A lot of times if astronauts are staying in space for long durations of times, they can hurt their eyesight. And especially when we're thinking about Mars, which is a six to eight month travel, and then a two year stay almost before you can come back, there is a chance. And some astronauts may lose partial eyesight, maybe. So I was wondering, what if you would train blind astronauts to join a team, like one blind astronaut? I don't know. Could that help the team? Could it? I mean, I think it's besides losing your eyesight, it's very stressful psychologically. So maybe they could allow some relief to the team. Maybe also, if we think about blind astronauts, when we design the spaceships, we could actually design for those astronauts that may lose their eyesight. Another thing is one of the first things that usually go out when you have a problem with electricity or energy is the light. So in general, I think that it's interesting to think about and to use and incorporate these people that are visually impaired in these types of missions, in the design process. Uh, I think they can have tremendous insight. We actually had an episode end of last year with a couple of individuals from Mission Astro Access as well. I'm really encouraged to see so many people kind of starting to have these conversations. I will say that in terms of like space architecture, though, I think the first space architect that I've talked to that is coming from this place of like designing with equity sort of built into the equation from the get-go. Not to say that there aren't others that are also thinking about these, but I would say that it seems like it's a very core component of your business. That seems pretty clear, which is amazing, obviously. And you also, you brought up an interesting topic, which I think is one I really want to ask about as well, because we do often on this podcast talk about radiation in space and how that will impact a whole host of different things. But how much from a space architecture standpoint, how much of a concern is the radiative environment of space for designing and building structures? I think it is one of the bigger concerns because it can completely transform the landscape or the way this will design. So basically, the amount of radiation differs depends where we are, but it is there, especially when we're talking about when you are not on planets. When you are on planets that don't have an atmosphere, that that's what we have here on Earth that protects us from radiation. So basically, we are in space exposed to very, very high amounts of radiation. And right now, there's a lot of effort into vests and things that we can wear, but they're usually uncomfortable. And the first thing I hear is that we should live underground. The Earth can protect us. The second thing I hear is that we need to have very, very thick shells to our structures, whether they are earth, whether they are filled with water. But basically all those solutions is to detach us from the outside. On one hand, they're talking about lava tubes, things like that, quote unquote, easy solution. It's not an easy solution, but it sounds about right. On the other hand, we are humans and we can't forget that, <laughs> not for a second. So what's the point of protecting ourselves from radiation if we'll be completely depressed? That means if underground, we have to kind of create a completely artificial environment, even in terms of landscape, of looking out the window. We will not have anything to look at. We'll be in the dark. So as I see it, it should be some sort of a hybrid until we really figure it out until maybe we'll terraform Mars and we'll have an atmosphere and we'll have less radiation or we'll find we'll have more advanced technology. But we'll have to spend a few hours underground, a few hours above, kind of like what we do now in offices. So to try to maintain a big balance. And we're also talking on underground, we're talking about 
inside walls of craters, which is the same idea, just not vertically low, but inside a wall. We have on Mars very, very deep craters that can protect us from a lot of things. So it's a good place to settle and we can use that. So I think it will really be a big component when we think about space habitats. That's really interesting, though, this idea of like separation of uses or, you know, things like that with lunar lava tubes. Because, yeah, I mean, I've definitely and we talk about this, you know, somewhat familiar with this idea that these lava tubes could provide shelters from radiation. But yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I kind of feel like if we're going to go and if we're going to be expected to stay, I mean, personally, I don't really want to be living underground the whole time. And I think there's probably a lot of people who would feel the same way about that. And similarly, you want to be able to look outside the window or experience your new environment. If your only mode of design is survival, I think you're going to really struggle to get people to stay because I don't think it's going to be very inviting. I think that we have to prepare for multiple types of features. It's not just one thing that may happen because we, n- we never know. So now that we know that that's an option to live underground, to live in lava tubes and things like that, I think that the technology for augmented reality, for how to make the people living underground not feel like they're living underground, should really be also a point of focus. And then you can ask the question, okay, so you're trying to create an artificial visual environment, maybe sensory environment. What should it look like? Should it look like the environment we know of Earth? That's also depressing for me. But specifically, I know that there's a lot of people and architects, when they're imagining things in space, they are trying to make the astronauts feel as at home as possible. And at home means on Earth. I think that's a waste of opportunity. (laughs) I think we should really open our minds and think about how to do things differently. I even saw sketches for moon habitats. Moon has a sixth of gravity from Earth's gravity. So I saw like regular drawings of staircases. And I was like, really? We're not going to use the fact that everything weighs sixth of everything that we know on Earth. And we're just going to walk up and down regular stairs like we have here on Earth. Why would you do that? Why won't you design gigantic wheels and you'll be able to pull your next floor to you and you'll stay still and the whole building will move because it's so light? I don't know. We can have so many other solutions. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's super cool. I mean, it's exciting to think about, right? Well, I agree with you. I don't know why we're so focused on trying to build something that's like reminiscent of Earth and our home. This is one of the rules of whenever you move somewhere new, right? You want to try to appreciate it for what it's worth and what it is. And so I think absolutely you would want to have designs on the lunar surface that reflect the lunar environment. Also think about the future inhabitants. I mean, they will not be the engineers that are working today in the industry. They'll be people that grew up playing video games. Think about kids right now. They will be the ones who live in space. They are used to live in insane virtual environments. Why not think about them when we're designing? Don't think about us, that we are used to Earth and we want it to feel at home. Think about the people who will actually be there. Yeah, it's like you got to kind of keep looking to the future. And it's wild to me that that's not more of a consideration. But I still feel like in the space industry, despite how innovative it can be and is, for all of that, there's still a lot of like, I feel like people envisioning what they want their outcome in space to look like, as opposed to, you know, again, thinking about what it is for future generations. Because I think that a lot of us, I mean, especially on the like architecture, planning and design side of things, I will say like a lot of times feel like what we're doing, it's not intended for us. It's sort of like if you're working in the space industry and you're not thinking about like 50 years out, I feel like that's a problem. I mean, obviously you want to think about the near term too. If you're focused on kind of solving for something that feels realistic in the next like five to 10 years, then that's not necessarily very visionary for like what could actually be possible in the future. So 
I wanted to go back to the question of gender equality in design. And I guess a question that I have for you is, how would you like to see the field of architecture and specifically space architecture change in the next handful of years to be less biased in its design? The last time I checked, I think it's 2020 when I checked this statistic, women in the space industry were about 20%. The rest are not women. And that's a problem in itself. The majority of those 20% are not in decision-making roles. So they have less influence. And I know the people in the space industry, I just got to say, are the coolest, nicest, most optimistic, fun people that I've ever met in my life. So I know they like to think about the future. They like to think about change but they are human. And we can't, as human beings, do things for people that are completely different than us, unless having them on board with us and having them part of the conversation, an equal part of the conversation. So just about the identity of the people that are working in the industry, there's a long way to go, unfortunately. And if we put in the urgency of the fact that we are now creating things for 50 years out, We don't have that long way to go. Things have to change quickly. I mean, I know NASA now are trying to have a very equal space trips, like 50-50 men and women, space crew, I mean, and that's not enough. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked, she was on the Supreme Court of the United States, and she was asked, when will we know that equality will actually be here? And she said when there will be nine women, the Supreme Court, all of the seats will be women. Because when there will be nine, and it will not be weird for us, like if nine men will have the seats, it's not weird for us. So I think that in order to change that, 50-50 doesn't cut it. So far, about 600 people have been to space. About 11, 12% of them have been women. It's not even 100 women ever been to space. We need to have the next, I don't know how many missions, only women or only people that haven't been to space yet in order to kind of balance that out. Another thing is we have to also look into what happens to our activities, to our psychological state when we have 10 men and two women, we have 10 women and two men. I mean, we have to experiment, just say, okay, we're doing everything 50-50 now. That's not good enough. And there are a lot of data gaps It will continue to remain if we're not going to change the way or the diversity of the team, the crews. So I think it's something that people should do things about it. I mean, the intention is there, but the actions behind it, not so much. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point too, as well, of what you were saying is I'm sure a lot of people probably go, oh, well, we just need to get to 50-50 and we'll be good to go. But you make some great points around how we've had so many years of missions that have been all men or predominantly men. And so it sort of invites the question, if we don't test out like on the flip side, what that would be like, as you said, 10 women, two men, or something along those lines, how do we know that we've gathered all the knowledge that we can about how things might go in space for that crew? So I think these are really interesting points because again, I hear a lot of people talking about just equity in space in general, But I think that you're right, that they sort of stop at either 50% or they stop at whatever in society's mind has become like an acceptable percentage of representation. But the question is, is like, if we're still sort of solving for that, have we really accomplished what we intend to? And I think you're spot on that we will have not yet. There's a danger about that because the reason that I got into thinking about equality-driven architecture, like I said in the very beginning, once we design infrastructure, whether it's on Earth or in space, it is hard to change it technically or in our minds. So right now, it's like once in a lifetime chance to start new. Nothing is there. We are now creating the infrastructure. If we create it in a way that is not taking real diversity into consideration, if we will design now for the crews that we imagine in our minds that are not everything that we just discussed, it will stay that way or it will be much harder for us to change it. Right now, it's the easiest to do things differently. 
as hard to imagine it, but it's going to get harder once it's already there. Once we'll have it, we'll say, okay, that's it. I mean, I designed a Martian settlement and I created all the structures like in ring shapes. All the buildings were round and the grid of the streets, the layout was also radial grid. And what that does is that allows us to never have dead ends or on the other hand, do something else that has a lot of dead ends because that's the easiest thing to do or the cheapest thing to do or the fastest thing to do. We'll get stuck with that. We don't redesign cities. We don't scratch them like off the grid and create new, right? So we'll be left with that and we'll build around it. And either it will not be usable, so it'll be a waste, or we'll just stay living and using those environments. So that's very, very important to change it quickly. If you think design is sticky here on this planet, and I'm sure some of us live in cities that we love, and some of us are maybe very frustrated by the cities in which we live and the way that they're laid out. And then if you think about, you know, sort of in space, I mean, there is just not that opportunity for any sort of course correction. I mean, we can still pivot and adapt our cities here on Earth a bit, right? But that underlying foundation, that underlying infrastructure is very much almost impossible to really alter a ton. I think that's just something that we have to keep in mind in space. I think that people feel like these are decisions and conversations that can happen later, but they can't. Like, they have to happen now because you're sort of laying that groundwork for what's to follow. I don't know. You and I are aligned. I hope that others are as well on sort of, you know, making this a priority conversation. I do want to jump to also the sleep space, which is your space tech startup. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that and sort of what is the problem that you're trying to solve with that startup? Yeah. So I started to think about the very basic building blocks that we have when I think about space. And, you know, we have to reinvent everything. Like I said, we have to reinvent how we eat, how we breathe. We also have to reinvent how we sleep. Now, sleep is a very, very basic human need and a very necessary component of mission success. If astronauts are tired, they will not function as well. Space missions are expensive. They will be expensive, you know, a good chunk of our future. So sleep is very important. In space, sleep is very hard to achieve. Imagine being on the International Space Station. It is orbiting Earth 16 times a day. Every 90 minutes, you have sunrise and sunsets and sunrise and like light and dark and light and dark. Your circadian rhythm is completely messed up. On the ISS, astronauts are all sleeping by Greenwich time. They're all sleeping like at the same time, but things happen and they need to have some sort of shift sometimes. And they don't have private areas. They usually sleep right there. Like imagine opening a sleeping bag in your office and you're just there. And we can think, talk about also how the National Space Station is designed and how it feels. And then usually they are going into sleeping bags. Their faces are open, meaning that everybody can see you. You can see also the outline of your body when you're sleeping. They have crew quarters, which are like phone booths size pods kind of, but they have like four or six of them. And usually there aren't enough. And also you are floating around. Nothing is touching your body except straps that are holding you in place to just not float around as you sleep. You have a constant buzzing of the station. You have not a great smell, though that's something you get used to, but they didn't open a window since the year 2000. And a lot of times when I talk to astronauts or to people that talk to astronauts, they say that astronauts really miss their body having pressure on it, so much so that they sometimes go in the cargo areas and squish themselves between stuff just to feel something on their bodies. And imagine these people are working, they're not family members usually, they can hug each other, but they don't have physical connection at all. So take all of that. Now, imagine you have that, and then you're going from there to the moon, and you're going through zero gravity. And then on the moon, you have, on the equator at least, 14 days of sunlight and 14 days of nighttime and different conditions. And temperature, you have one temperature for everybody. Not everybody feel comfortable in the same temperature. So I think I rest my case that that's not the most comfortable solution, situation to live in, to add all the stress of the mission itself. 
And right now, the solutions are either the sleeping bags or those crew quarters, which are not enough. And when we're thinking about adding more pods like this, sleeping modules, you always think about, okay, we have to splice something out there. You have to add more volume. You have to basically get more space for that. And my product is saying, okay, let's look at what we have, the actual physical volumes that we already have. What would happen if we would fill them up with something? The idea is to incorporate architecture and design way of thought with medical aspects, with psychological behavior. For me, it began with the fact that I was like, how are they comfortable sleeping with a ton of other people just potentially looking at them? I mean, imagine someone sitting next to your bed and looking at you while you sleep. Just that alone and the temperature and, you know, you need your private space. So it, it started for me from the psychological aspects. And, you know, I was trying to invert the way that we think. If you want to design a house, we need a bedroom, we add another room. I don't want to add another room. I wanted to use what we have. So how can we use it and create privacy? So that's kind of the thought process around that. There are a lot of interesting things that as we think about this, we realize and we can tackle. And for me, that's kind of like the first stepping stone or the first step, the first building block. And then when we finish with the sleeping, we'll tackle the next thing and then we'll scale it up. And hopefully we'll get to use that same process of thinking to large scale structures and habitat and settlements and things like that. The nice thing is that in space, every single thing that we are designing have to be done by an interdisciplinary group of people. You can't have just engineers or just scientists or just architects or just designers. And you need doctors and psychologists and you need everyone to be involved in every little step you take. So I really think that it's going to be an exciting, exciting thing to create and to pursue. And who knows? I hope to get to the ISS and then to the moon with the product itself. Maybe it will be also be 3D printed on site. I hope that's one of the goals. And then imagine if we can print a product and we will send only the files to space. And if I would want to also use it on Earth, wouldn't it make bad sense if I would manufacture it and ship it to you. I mean, it's obvious I will send you also the file and you will print it yourself or the local manufacturer will print it for you. So kind of like I'm trying to take those processes and those ideas also to how we do things back here. And we'll dive more into that in a bit. But first, a quick word from our lead sponsor this season, Multiverse Media Group. Multiverse Media Group is a global media group involved in all things science and technology, with an emphasis on space. They create top-tier film, digital news, multimedia experiences, and literature for the space and science community. Most recently, their film production team produced the documentary The High Frontier about Dr. Jerry O'Neill. Dr. O'Neill was a visionary scientist who wrote the seminal book on space-based habitats, the High Frontier, Human Colonies in Space. His futuristic idea for cylindrical habitats, or O'Neillian cylinders, inspired many to reach for the stars, including myself. If you haven't seen the film yet, I highly recommend watching it, especially if you're interested in how the framework of even thinking about how humans will live in space was created. I'm personally a big fan of the film and encourage listeners of this podcast to check it out. Currently, you can buy or rent the film on Apple TV, and you can also purchase the DVD on Amazon. Let's say that you could design any structure that you wanted in space. No budgetary constraints, doesn't really have to be rational or even realistic, but what would you love to design to have built on the moon or Mars? You can't ask me that. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I want to design so many things. You know, I would want to experiment. I would want to design a lab. I think that's what I want to design. Because a lot of times when we think about how would space architecture would look, everyone is trying to kind of prove that this is the way it should look. And that is just not realistic. It will probably look many different ways. Some will function better. Some will not. Some will function better for some people and other things will function better for other people. So I want to have a lab on the moon or on Mars 
huge, gigantic bubble, which is fun because we can create huge, gigantic things or bigger things than what we can create here on Earth structurally because of lower gravity and kind of experiment with a ton of different things. I mean, to be so confident as to say, I know from Earth what we need in space. I mean, I want to go there with a bunch of people or a bunch of people to go there, not necessarily myself, although I would never say no to that, and experiment <laughs> and think about a few things and allow myself or the designers and architects have the flexibility to change it up once they're on site. I think that's so important. And I want to create worlds from like video games like super mario like i want to try to see how we can jump from floor to floor or how we can move around rooms and you know i want to play with that that's what i want i want a big playground so i also want to ask you this question we ask this of everyone that comes on the show but celestial citizen is all about the idea that humans can become not only better stewards of earth but also better interplanetary citizens So in your opinion, what is one important way in which people can work toward becoming celestial citizens today? That's an interesting question. I think that the first thing is to learn and to read and to talk about things, to understand that things are happening, things that are different are happening, and to start to have a bigger conversation and to invite people in. It's not only nice to have, it's necessary that we hear everyone. So I think that's something that could really help and we can all do it now. The problem with that is that the space industry suffers with really complicated representation on media. If you go to NASA's website and you start to read and you want to learn, it's really hard to understand. So everything that has to do with communications from any angle that you may imagine I mean, if we agreed that we have to start the conversation now or we have to start a change to prepare it now, and we agree that it's extremely complicated, the thing that we can use is people. The more people talking about it, the more people thinking about it, the more people suggesting ideas, I think the better chances we have to come up with better things. The last thing is that We shouldn't take ourselves so seriously, especially architects and designers and engineers. We're not building like the scene chapel. It's it's okay. We can make mistakes, but we have to move faster. So I think that conversation should kind of be happening more. Mm -hmm. So now we are going to move on to our lightning round of quick questions. And you can feel free to give a brief explanation as to why you picked what you did, or you can give no explanation at all, just an answer. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. Would you rather live on the moon or Mars? The moon. It's much safer. Also much quicker to get to as well. Less of a commute. On the moon, your favorite space hobby would be what? Jumping. (laughs) You will quite literally be able to reach new heights. So (laughs) that will be fun for sure. Okay. Are you more excited about when humans return to the moon or land on Mars for the first time? I think Mars because it's new. I agree. Mars is going to be, that's going to be wild. All right. Favorite astronaut? Mae Jameson, I think is awesome. She has a very, very good quote that I always use. And she said that never let other people limit yourself by their limited imagination and also never limit others by your own limited imagination. And I love that. That's a quote that I definitely have grown fond of as well. It's just like, it's aged so well, especially. I think it like really describes kind of this pivot point that we're at right now in terms of what's next for the space industry and like really being unafraid to sort of dare into kind of a a more innovative path of what that might be. So yeah, agree. I love that quote. Okay, this one's probably going to be really tough for you as well. I'm putting you on the spot, but favorite architect? One is Tadao Ando. He is an, a Japanese architect that taught himself architecture. He never studied it. And he has a way to use light as a material. And that's amazing. And he does very, very minimalistic, beautiful buildings with special kind of concrete that is so smooth. There's a, one building in New York that he built, the only one so far. And I just go and like pat it. And people think I'm insane. 
but I just love it. And the other, <laughs> sorry, that was like a moment mm-hmm. for me. And the other is big architects, Bjarke Ingels. I think they are super cool. They are having fun with what they're doing. They're pretty awesome. They're not taking themselves too seriously. They're relatively young compared to large scale architecture firms in the world. I would love to see more diversity there, I would have to say, but I love them. Those are some really solid examples there. So if you could bring one item to space, what would it be? I mean, when I move around on Earth, I bring books with me. So maybe some books. I hate to say a Kindle of sorts because that's more realistic when you go to space. Although I think that the process of flipping pages is so important for the experience itself. But heck, I would say books. (laughs) I don't care if you said anything that I can take. I'm taking books. I love it. I mean, there is like a, a very interesting physical relationship with books that like, despite being able to listen to audiobooks, despite being able to use like more of a virtual kind of reader device, it's like there's just something about like opening up a book that you just can't replicate. Um, favorite planet or moon? I have least or worst reputation. Can I switch that around? Planet? That I'm so oh, upset yeah. about. Go for it, yeah. So Venus, I'm so upset about that. I mean, Mars is named Mars after the god of war in the Greek mythology. And Venus, the harshest planet, got the name of a goddess. First of all, why? <laughs> that kind of is upsetting. And it makes me always wonder, who are the people that are naming our planet? And then every time that we talk about Venus, it's kind of like she is the worst planet. She is the harshest. I mean, that whole thing, but she's so interesting. I mean, Venus has like a ton of gravity. You're not able to stand up. It has sulfur rain. I mean, it's insane. And things probably are living there somehow. We'll find out. We already found something in the air, like, you know, but I think Venus is so interesting, like how something so toxic exists And why did we name it Venus? (laughs) (laughs) I know. Yeah, it does seem a bit unfair. Hey, we've had a lot of Venusians come on this podcast. A lot of people that are very passionate about Venus and doing more missions, more research missions to Venus. So I think you are not alone in that being kind of, you know, a planet of intrigue, I suppose. Okay, let's say you have the opportunity to live off Earth temporarily, but would you rather live underground, like in a lava tube, on the surface, let's assume this is the moon, or in an orbiting space station? Well, I would live on the surface, I think. Definitely not underground. Orbiting station, if I'm able to go down to the planet itself that I'm orbiting, I think maybe it's even better to be orbiting and not mm-hmm. like stationary. I mean, the views alone are so, so if we could, but if not, then I prefer to be on a planet on the surface with windows. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's interesting because orbiting space stations, I mean, right, it's almost kind of like being on a, on a submarine or a big ship. As long as you can at some point leave. I think signing up to just stay on a space station forever and always would be a very, very difficult thing to do. Okay, let's say you're sent on a long-duration mission. What's more important, choosing your crew, choosing the food, or choosing the destination? Choosing the crew, I think, is the most important. I mean, others, you can manage. The crew, super important to get along, be happy, laugh with them, know how to fight with them. You know, I think that's the most important. Got to be like family at a certain point. Okay, so finish this sentence. In 50 years, we'll all be what? We'll all be multiplanetary species for sure. Oh, I like it. I like it. Healthy dose of optimism to round out this podcast interview. That's definitely something to look forward to. So thank you so much, Mika, for joining Celestial Citizen Podcast today. It has been great having you on the show. I love getting to chat architecture and discuss the future of the built environment in space, which is a really fascinating topic. So 
Thank you again for taking the time out to come on the show today. Thank you so much. It was such a fun conversation. I had a blast. I hope everybody had as much fun to listen to it as I had talking about it. So thank you again. Three, two, one. We have liftoff. Again, we want to thank our lead sponsor this season, Multiverse Media Group, for supporting our show. To check out their film, The High Frontier, you can go to their website at thehighfrontiermovie.com. And to our community of Celestial Citizens, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Celestial Citizen Podcast. This episode would not be possible without the terrific work of this show's editor, Victor Figueroa. Thank you, Victor. Also, a very special thank you to Graham Clark, who created the amazing intro and outro music for this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Celestial Citizen, and I hope you are, then check out celestialcitizen.com. You can also follow along on Twitter at Celestial Citizen and Instagram at The Celestial Citizen. Also, be sure to sign up for our newsletters on Substack. You can find the link to all of this on our website. And if you're interested in supporting the mission of Celestial Citizen, you can always reach out to learn more about opportunities to sponsor this podcast. A major component of Celestial Citizen is feedback and public participation. We want to hear what you have to say. So let us know what you think about humanity's future in space and what it should look like. Please share your voice and your unique perspective on social media, or if you prefer, all of the Celestial Citizen articles can also be found on Medium. So drop a comment and join the conversation. If you love today's podcast, please have your friends and family subscribe on whatever device or platform you listen to podcasts on and leave a stellar review so others can get hooked as well. That's all for now, Celestial Citizens. I'll be back next week for another episode. In the meantime, don't be afraid to take up space.